Matthew chapter 18 and reading verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my uh, brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, but because thou desirest me, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now that's our reading, and we trust that God will bless our reading and our consideration of it. Last night in our introductory study, we were thinking very much about the definition of forgiveness from Scripture and seeing that particularly in God's forgiveness of us as his people at the point of salvation and then that ongoing forgiveness that is freely bestowed and taught in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 9 particularly. And we saw that that repentance, that repentance is absolutely essential when we think about forgiveness. And we saw that forgiveness really has to do with the restoration of broken relationships and takes two rather than one. Now we're going to continue this theme as we go through today that we might investigate what the scripture has to say about forgiveness for there is so much. In Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11 it says this that it is a man's glory to pass over a transgression. And that verse is really saying that man is seen at his best when he forgives. The word glory, of course, in Scripture really speaks about the manifestation of attributes. When you think about God's glory, you're thinking about the display and manifestation of who he essentially is. And man's glory, man at his best, is seen when he passes over transgression when he forgives. It is a noble thing. It's a wonderful thing to witness or experience. 
It really is one of the best experiences that you and I can have and that a relationship can have, that forgiveness is offered and received. And there is a restoration of relationship on a proper foundation going forward. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 takes that thought even a step further for Christians and instructs us that this is something that we ought to be doing. So it is not just that it would be a wonderful thing to see and it would be a wonderful thing to receive or to be involved in as if it were for a select few. Actually, Paul teaching the saints in Ephesus teaches them that they ought to be forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. So there is a duty placed upon us as those who have received forgiveness to dispense it. As those who have enjoyed it, then to provide it. It is a duty incumbent upon us. Based upon the fact that we have received the forgiveness of God in Christ. Colossians also in chapter 3 and verse 13 is the same thoughts in these words. Forgiving one another even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, of course, there are great examples in the Bible of forgiveness, not even withstanding the greatest of all, which is, of course, God's forgiveness. But you think about that wonderful story in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, and the story of Joseph. And how remarkable it was as you follow that story through when it comes to that point and Joseph can hardly contain himself and his brothers are before him and they don't know him, but he knows them. And he is far different than the, from the last time they saw him, but they're just the same. And he stands in front of them, unable to contain himself anymore, and he reveals to them that he is Joseph. And they were terrified because of what they had done to that young man. Their sin and their wickedness must have come flooding back into their minds. But listen to Joseph, as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, fear not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And it says this, and he comforted them and he spoke kindly unto them. There is the dispensing of kindness and there is the removal of the debt that they owed. He forgave them. And they received gladly the forgiveness that was offered. And the relationship was restored and healed as a result. You have many other examples. For example, David in 1 Samuel 24 verse 7, he forgave Saul. In 2 Samuel 19, he forgave Shimei. And you've got many other examples of forgiveness in the Old Testament. When you come into the New Testament, you have examples of forgiveness that was offered. For example, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60 says, Lay not this sin to their charge. And there is the forgiving spirit manifested. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus himself, as we thought about uh, last night, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, before we get to Matthew chapter 18, let me just kind of go in a circular way to Matthew 18 through Matthew chapter 6. Because as we think about this, what I want to say is just this, that we all need forgiveness. Now, we saw that last night in 1 John chapter 1 particularly. 
And we learn from 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, that there is a requirement for every single one of us for ongoing forgiveness from God in our lives as those who belong to God. We have ongoing issues with sin. We need to have ongoing repentance and confession and we need ongoing forgiveness from God. Now, an unforgiving spirit within us will actually impact our fellowship with the Lord and our relationship with him. And listen to what Matthew chapter 6 says in that prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that is a believer's prayer. It's addressed to our Father. And it's speaking about the problem of ongoing sin and the need that we have to have our ongoing sin dealt with. But if we have a spirit whereby we are unwilling to forgive others, then it's going to impact the forgiveness that we receive on an ongoing basis from the Lord ourselves. You say, well, can a Christian have unforgiven sin? Well, of course we can. Not in the penal judicial sense as we were thinking about last night, but rather this in terms of communion and fellowship and joy and all that flows out of that unbreakable relationship and the enjoyment of it, yes, our sin can taint that and mar that and stain that and dull the enjoyment of all of that. That is true. And God's chastening can come upon us and he can discipline us as his children. And I was emphasizing last night the difference between the judicial action of God against sin and the parental action of God against sin. And so God is not now dealing with us as a judge deals with a criminal, but he's dealing with us as a parent deals with a child. So it's parental, not judicial. And in the chastening that comes upon us, he deals with the issue of our sin and our lack of confession and our lack of repentance. And by chastening, he's drawing us to the point where we engage with him, seeking forgiveness through repentance and confession. That the stain might be removed, the distance might be gone, that the impact of our sin upon our enjoyment of salvation might be diminished. But listen, if we don't have a forgiving spirit, then the aspiratory prayer of Matthew 6 is not going to come to pass in our life. Because it says this, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Someone wrote this and I, I marked it down. Are you looking at your life and saying, I don't see the kind of joy I ought to see in my life? I don't have the kind of spiritual fulfillment I expected. I don't seem to have the power of God in my life. On the other hand, it seems as though I'm always in difficulty, always being chastened, always struggling. I've examined my life. I don't know any great moral sin. 
But then you backtrack, according to this author. And there it is. Some grudge. Some bitterness. Something you haven't nor would forgive. And it's blocking the experience of forgiveness in your own life. Listen to Mark 11 verse 25. When you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against any, that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. You see, the prayer is not forgive us because we forgive others. The prayer is forgive us even as we are forgiving others. For the truth is just this. We are asking God to do to us as we are doing to others. It's a pattern of life that we plead before God and say forgive us even as we forgive others. Well, with that in mind, let's come to Matthew chapter 18 then. This being one of the chapters, I suppose, that your mind may have turned to when you think about the subject of forgiveness. And it is interesting, if you were to read the whole context of the section that we read, you would discover that it begins with children. And the chapter begins in that way, for example, look at verse number two. Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. And so the context begins with the Lord Jesus referencing a child. Now that flows right down through the chapter. If you miss that, you'll miss much of the context of what's said in the chapter. He is using the child as an object lesson. And he will reference back to that child as he teaches down through the chapter. So he will teach on issues such as pride, temptation, the restoration of lost sheep, and he'll speak about discipline as well in that chapter, all in the context of setting a little child in the midst. And the child, and the way a child is dealt with, should modify every other issue that is raised, even including discipline. And then he'll come to this subject of forgiveness, and likewise, the child modifies the subject. You see, the issues are all related down through the chapter. And then we come to the particular section that we're thinking about, and Peter asks a question. And the question is just this, how often? How often? It's an often referenced question. So... The question was a very insightful question, actually, because when you think about the context of it, the context has been discipline in verse 15, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, and then there is instruction how to resolve an issue between two people, go and tell him his fault and him alone. If he hear, if he shall hear thee, there is gain thy brother. If he will not hear thee, take one with thee, one or two more, and the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, and so forth. And verse 18, whatsoever is bound in earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever is loosed in earth shall be loosed in heaven, and so on. 
So that's the context, it's dispute resolution. So this question is very pertinent. Peter understands himself and he understands human nature and he understands and takes into account the likelihood that people will go back to familiar sin. The disputes that arise between people because of character or because of circumstances probably are going to arise again. Now Peter's thinking about this. He's working it out. And so he's thinking through, I think, in his mind and he's saying, right, okay, because he was a man of action and I can see him thinking, I need to go and do this in this circumstance or if I did this with this particular brother and he goes through the whole scenario laid out by the Lord Jesus and then he comes to a conclusion, hold on a minute, I know that brother. He's bound to do that again. He's bound to do it again. Mind you, so are you and so am I. I mean, if we annoy each other today, the likelihood is we'll annoy each other tomorrow. That's just the way we are. Our character rarely changes that much. So Peter, I think, is insightful in terms of his understanding of the issue. And it's a big issue. It's a big issue for us. And so he asked the question. Discipline has been enacted. Forgiveness, okay. The question is, do you hold a grudge? Do you hold a grudge? Mind you, it's harder to hold a grudge against a child than it is against an adult. And so the context of the child is important. And so we come to this, and in verse 21, the question is, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times. Now, remember the context. Don't be hard on Peter. Peter is actually being very generous in the number he chooses here he had a Jewish background and he came from a culture where there was very hard and fast established procedures in relation to forgiveness and this anticipation of him of the inability of people not to return to familiar sin is causing him a problem because he's thinking what's the limit now, it's very personal because he says, against me, if my brother sinned against me. So this is personal. He feels the pain, the hurt, and all that kind of language. So he says seven times. Now, mind you, don't be hard on him. Have you ever forgiven someone seven times? Now, forgiveness in the context of what we learned last night. This isn't just putting it out of your mind for 10 minutes. This isn't just squeezing your eyes and trying your best to not feel bad thoughts. This is actually going through what's being taught, going to meet the person, to face the person, to take witnesses, to bring it to the church, to establish forgiveness through the principles which have been taught in this chapter for the restoration of relationship and the issue to be faced up and so forth. Seven times... Not in your life, but with the same person. Peter must have been feeling quite content that he had a good number. Now, Jewish tradition said four was too much. They said three was an acceptable number. Now, they got it from Amos. Chapter 1, verse 3, 6, 9, 11, and 13. There is a familiar expression. 
Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza or Damascus or Tyre or Edom or Ammon, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now that was their proof text and they had five of them in the one chapter. So they were pretty confident in their ground. They, they said, look, God is showing us that when it got to three, that was his limit, and the fourth was too much. So Peter says, I'm going to go in beyond that. I'm going seven. So he's breaking past the established principle that he had lived by within the Judaistic culture, which was four was one too many. And he's going beyond that, beyond his tradition, but of course he gets this disappointment. The Lord just blows that out of the water and says no. He says not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now that number is just so large, it's almost hyperbole, it's so large you would lose count. He's really just saying there's no limit. Don't put a limit on it. Don't put a limit on it. Listen to Luke 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespasses against thee, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There's the word repentance again. In other words, when he repents, give him the full forgiveness. <coughs> and then verse 4 of Luke 17 says, If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. It's just too much, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's just too much. Who could possibly be that person? Well, of course, we know that God is that person. Because the likelihood is he has forgiven you and me countless times. Countless times. So it's not impossible because God does it. But is it possible for us to do? Or is it just too much? Someone wrote this, we are to be engaged in the forgiving of one another which is born out of love and tenderness and mercy and grace that can only be understood by a consideration of how much God has forgiven us. <coughs> now, if you were there, you would have been stunned by the words of the Lord Jesus. <coughs> And he knows that because he tells them a story. So he says in verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king. Now he breaks the ice as if it were. I can imagine Peter just standing there stunned as if, how is it possible to put that into practice? Well, I'm going to tell you a story, Peter. And this story will help you in your perspective. So he tells the parable. Now, it's a well-known parable, especially in the realm of forgiveness. It's a very harsh parable, actually. There is a harshness to it that causes some to think that it can't be applied to Christians, but I want to show you that that's not the case. And although there is a severity, particularly to verse 34, where the Lord is angry and delivers him to the tormentors, how could the Lord turn Christians over to the tormentors? And some don't like the application that this could be speaking about 
Christians. Actually, it is, and we're going to see that. And we're learning the principle here that God's forgiveness and our heart attitude are linked together. So he makes the application of the story in verse number 35. So likewise, there's the word, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. There's the connection. So he's saying, listen, this is actually important that your heart is calibrated in this connection. It's like this. Because if it's not like that, then you're going to suffer the consequences that are set out in this story. And he says, if your hearts do not forgive your brother their trespasses, there will be consequences. Let's look at this parable then. Now it's interesting that when you consider the severity and harshness of verse 34, can I suggest to you, it really resonates with the language of Hebrews in relation to chastening and discipline of God the Father to us as children. In that context, there is a word used that you would think is very severe. It's the word scourging. Now, that is not a more harsh word than the word tormentors. It's a very equivalent word. And so the teaching of Hebrews in relation to chastening has language which is as harsh as this story. And they are not dissimilar. Now bearing that in mind, let's look at the parable. First of all, there is a debt. Now the king in this parable has set an occasion in verse 23 and he's going to take account of his servants. There is an accounting. And probably it is, some commentators liken these um, servants to provincial governors who come and they have to give an account of their stewardship of the area for the king. That's the kind of idea. They're coming to give an account, usually in terms of taxation. Now, just to put this in context, I was reading that at the same period of time, the total annual revenue collected by the Roman government from Judea and Samaria was 600 talents per annum. The total revenue collected from Galilee was 300 talents. So 10,000 talents is an astronomical figure. It is deliberately so. It is to give the sense of what is being conveyed by the story. So that here is a servant who comes to his master and the reckoning shows that he is in debt with this astronomical figure. In fact, in terms of uh, Greek numbers, the largest numerical term in the Greek language was 10,000. You didn't get a bigger number. It's like equivalent to a word like zillions. I mean, it, would, it was the biggest number that you could write, so anything bigger was in multiples of that number. So what the story is really, for those who were hearing it, it's this astronomical sum that is owed by this servant, and he's got to give an account. He's in debt, but he's not in debt for a little bit. He's in debt that is beyond comprehension. 
It takes us beyond the ability to calculate. So he owes an inestimable, incalculable, unpayable debt beyond any ability to pay, beyond any ability to actually comprehend that one person could owe such, such a sum. Now that is a picture of our debt to God. Let's make no mistake. Let us not underestimate the debt of our sin before a holy God. If we were to pay it in full, eternity would never exhaust it. It's beyond comprehension. And that is why it took the suffering of one who is eternal with all the capacity that he had to endure to exhaust and fulfill and complete and paid in full. We cannot understand it, our debt. And this is putting it in context and so we, like this man, can fit into the story. We are like the man who's brought before his master with a burden of debt that's beyond our ability to even consider discharging. So there we are in, this, in the story. Verse 25, it is expressed explicitly, but for as much as he had not to pay. So he has no means, not even to dent it, not even to scratch the surface of it, not even to chip away at it over his whole life. He just hasn't got the means to touch the debt. The consequence of which is severe. And so he's told that there will be severe punishment and he will be sold into slavery, his wife will be sold into slavery, his children will be sold into slavery and he will have to sell his house, his possessions, everything and he will literally have to give everything and it still won't touch it. You see, in those days, if you couldn't pay, then you became a slave and you paid your debt by working off what you could and your wife had to work off and your children had to work it off over a lifetime. Everything you owned was liquidated into cash to pay it off and you became like an indentured servant. That's actually what the prodigal son was volunteering for when he went back home to pay off the debt that he owed his father, make me as one of thy hired servant, indentured servant, hired servant. But our sin had a debt that was unpayable. Now look at verse 26. The servant falls down and worships, saying, Lord, of patience with me, I will pay thee all. Now, he doesn't plead for justice because he's getting justice. Nothing unjust about this. And he doesn't deny his sin, he admits his sin. And he falls down and he's crushed and he's broken and he's humble and he has a right attitude towards his master and he's honouring his master and he's worshipping in that sense. He is low and his master is high. He has the attitude that God expects of those who come to him with that burden of sin. Broken and humbled and empty and low and accepting responsibility. There he is. It's a picture of a repentant <coughs> sinner. Then verse 27, we see the compassion 
of his master. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. He loosed him and forgave him the debt. So he forgives an absolutely incomprehensible debt in a moment out of compassion. He had the wherewithal to do it. His heart was moved towards the man. The man is humbled in his presence and the, the debt is forgiven. The burden is removed. Listen to a quote. Come to God with your broken heart over your utter sinfulness, knowing you could never pay the debt, crying out to God for mercy and patience in a dire situation, facing eternal judgment, saying, Lord, please. And in the midst of that brokenness, does God come in his tender, forgiving grace and loving kindness and forgives your debt? Do you know when that happened? That happened the moment you get saved. And do you see that debt? It's gone forever. An eternity of debt wiped out in a moment of time. When you and I consider that, then what we have that follows in the parable, could I suggest to you, is very challenging. And when you have the first part of the story understood, the second part is a bit embarrassing. You can put yourself, you can see yourself there and see yourself as God must see you when you refuse to forgive. Well, that's what we're, we're now looking at, the king's perspective of the subsequent behaviour of his servant. The one who has been forgiven. Now the king is going to take account of how he behaves post-forgiveness. Well, what happens is just this, verse 28, the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. Now, how soon did this happen? Well, the story seems to indicate, and perhaps for effect, that this happens immediately because he doesn't just walk out and bump into somebody. The idea is that he went out looking for somebody. Do you know the first thought that came into his mind once he was forgiven? Someone owed him a debt. The first thing that came into his mind. I'm owed a debt. You know, the credit it. But then that's what we're like. In all our self-righteousness. And in all our pride. These things pop into your head and you're embarrassed to admit it, but they do. And sometimes, you know, when you have graciously forgiven someone else uh, and that forgiveness has been received, or when, you know, you have repented or whatever, uh, and you're involved in a situation, it's all resolved, and you walk, it, you walk away from that situation... And it pops into your head, you know what? It's about time someone else did that to me. Why is it always me that's having to take the first step? Why is it me that's having to, why is it me? And why is that person not come? And that's what happened to this man. And he goes out looking for a man who owed him a debt. And he doesn't just find another servant of someone. He finds a fellow servant and the context would seem to indicate someone who knows all about the situation, someone who's been involved in the whole thing, a fellow servant. And you know what he did? 
He grabbed him by the throat and started to choke the life out of him. We would say he was wringing his neck. And so he was. He's completely lost control. And again, this is a bit embarrassing because I'm sure that we've all done that kind of thing. We've just lost the plot in our mind and in our heart and we've forgotten that we've been forgiven and we're now demanding things from other people. Well, this man is owed a debt and mind you, the debt is minuscule. I said last night, you know, that sometimes arguments between believers are like two ants trying to see who's the tallest standing beside Mount Everest. And totally lost perspective. Well, you know, that's what this man's like. He's throttling someone over a pittance. And it may well be that you are owed debts. Debts of obligation, debts of promises, debts of apologies, debts of sin. And you've got them all calculated and noted and, and, and you love to, to remind yourself about them all. But the truth of the matter is, compared to the debt that you've been forgiven, it's tiny. It's tiny. Well, that's what this mandate was. And, you know, every time you see the person, anger comes into your heart, you hold bitterness, you hold a grudge. And look at verse 29. His fellow servant falls down at his feet and he beseeches him. And he says, have patience with me. I will pay thee all. Here's someone who has displayed the same attitude as he displayed. He's not worshipping because that's inappropriate because they're two fellow servants. But here's a debt that is payable. Here's a situation that can be resolved. All he needs is a bit of time. There's an answer to this. There's a solution to this. Restitution can actually be made here. But there's no compassion. This man's heart is hard. So he chucks him into prison. So he goes into a debtor's prison. It's harsh. You see, having been forgiven, he should have forgiven himself. Having been loved, he should have loved. Having been the recipient of compassion, he should have dispensed compassion. Having received mercy, he should have given mercy. Because the greatest sins that any of us have committed against us <coughs> pale into insignificance by the sins that we have committed against God. Titus 3 verse 1 to 3 speaks in this way. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Well, verse 32, there is a reckoning because his Lord calls him and says unto him, O thou wicked servant. You see, that was a true statement in relation to his behaviour since he had been forgiven. I forgave thee all that debt because thou besoughtest me. You know, Lenski in his commentary, he calls this a moral monstrosity. That anybody should be so forgiven and unable to forgive someone else. 
a moral monstrosity. You know, the reality is just this. We ought to forgive. This man, because he was unwilling to forgive, suffered. He was put to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now, what about us? Well, that's why I took you to Matthew chapter 6. We ought to forgive positively because we've been forgiven so much, but we ought to forgive for a negative reason as well, because if we don't, we're going to be chastened by God. He will discipline us as a father disciplines their child. Someone wrote this, He who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. Let me give you two fairly lengthy quotes and then this session will be finished. Revenge indeed seems often sweet to men, but it is only sugared poison, only sweetened gall, and its aftertaste is bitter as hell. Forgiving, enduring love alone is sweet and blissful. It enjoys peace and the consciousness of God's favour. By forgiving, it gives away and annihilates the injury. It treats the injurer as if he had not injured and therefore feels no more the smart and sting that he had inflicted. Forgiveness is a shield from which all the fiery darts of the wicked one harmlessly rebound. Forgiveness brings heaven to earth and heaven's peace into the sinful heart. Forgiveness is the image of God, the forgiving Father, and an advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. Your unalterable duty as a Christian is clear. As surely as we are Christians, men and women who have experienced great compassion, who see in every man a brother in Christ, and in every woman a sister in Christ, surely... We must be willing to forgive. Let me finish with a story from William Arnott. He wrote about a traveller in Burma who had gone across a certain river and found his body covered by small leeches that were busily sucking the blood out of his body. His first impulse was to tear the tormentors from his flesh but his servant warned him that to pull them off by mechanical violence would expose his life to danger. They must not be torn off lest portions remain in the wounds and become poison. They must drop off spontaneously and so they will be harmless. His servant prepared a bath and used a concoction of some herbs and directed him to lie down into it. As soon as he had bathed in that bath, the leeches started to drop off. Arnott says, each unforgiven injury rankles in the heart like a leech sucking the lifeblood. Mere human determination 
to have done with it will not cast the evil thing away. You must bathe your whole being in God's pardoning mercy. And those venomous creatures will instantly let go their hold and you will stand up free. You must bathe your whole being in God's pardoning love. It is the only way for the 70 times 7 to be possible. We trust that God will bless our meditation upon his word. I'm going to pray now and then I'm sure you've been tempted by what sits in front of me. I don't know if that's for now or when it's for, but there will be a break for coffee after I've prayed. Thank you.